0: This is what's called a stepped wedge cluster randomised control trial.
1: It's actually about making every day really meaningful and purposeful.
0: Even conventional or complementary medicines weren't working for them. Something is going on in the kinds of spaces that we are building. They kept trying to find something else. Think.
1: Think Health on 2SER
2: 107.3. Hello and welcome to Think Health. I'm Jake Morecambe. Today, stories from the emergency room.
1: I think the worst is when people just rush into the emergency department, wanting to see a doctor right away. That can be quite stressful and there can be quite some aggression as well, especially when there's people who are under in their influence.
2: Rethinking models of care to make the emergency department more efficient. And pesticides. What sort of effect can they have not only on our crops, but our health? That's today on the show. It might surprise you that your hair dryer could contain silver. And it might shock you further that exposure to that silver could form antimicrobial resistances in your body. Silver has a long history as an antimicrobial, but the growing abundance of nanosilvers, tiny silver particles, in everyday consumer products is making our bodies accustomed to their antimicrobial effects. These are some of the findings the I3 Institute at the University of Technology Sydney has found in their research. Dr. Cindy Gunawan is one of the leaders behind this research and is looking at how silver in things like our hair dryers could mean we lose nanosilver as an important antimicrobial.
3: Um, Nanosilver has been incorporated in medical devices such as wound dressings to treat burn wounds, to treat chronic wounds, for example, like those found in diabetic patients, and also to treat pressure ulcers because these wounds are prone to infections. So nanosilver is used there to fight these infections. Nanosilver has also been incorporated in urinary catheters, in tracheal catheters and also in a central venous catheters. What are they? Urinary catheters are used to drain your urine. For example, if you just have had an operation, then you can actually urinate. So you need to put a catheter in to be able to drain your urine. Studies have shown that there are infections associated with the insertion of these catheters. The purpose of having nanosilver on these catheters is to actually prevent these infections by bacteria. And nanosilver has been coated on implants too, prosthetic implants. Like what? New replacement, for example. But worryingly, nanosilver has now been incorporated in fast areas of consumer products. There is this commercialization of nanosilver by capitalizing consumers' fear of germs. So they're putting nanosilver almost everywhere now. They're putting it in personal care products, in toothpaste, toothbrush, soaps. In deodorants, in clothing, in socks, in household appliances, for example, in fridges, washing machines, air conditioners, in food and beverages as coatings in food containers. Nanosilver is actually also being taken as a dietary supplement. That's quite worrying in um, shavers and and personal care products, hair dryers and so on. Wow. Yeah, and even in baby products, in bottles, in teats, and also in blankets and toys.
2: So silver is a mineral. Yeah. It's mined and then somehow and then inserted into its products.
3: Yeah, so silver as an antimicrobial has been known for decades. People's in like a 1300, 1400, you know, like they use silver spoon, silver board, for example, for its antimicrobial activity. And because of this advancement in nanotechnology, scientists have now been able to actually synthesize silver particles in really, really tiny size. So because of this widespread and indiscriminate use of nanosilver, there has been this escalating concern that commercialization can lead to development of bacterial resistance just like in the case of antibiotics.
2: And that's because mm-hmm. by being so exposed to these nanosilvers, yeah. even in things like you were saying, our hair dryers, or, yeah. or found in hair yeah. products or something, yeah. because we're interacting with them so readily, our bodies begin to become accustomed
3: to them. Uh, we actually have this study. We know that bacteria can develop resistance to nanosilver because our study sac actually demonstrated that in the lab. But then we actually have these cornerstone questions like whether this tendency or natural ability of this bacteria to develop resistance can happen in the actual application of nanosilver in the real world. So what happened is that we investigated these commercially available medical devices and also consumer products to see as to whether these products can facilitate continuous exposure of microorganisms to bioactive silver, which underpins the development of resistance. And we found, yes, so we have these investigations to see the fates of this silver when it's in use. So, for example, in wound dressings, there will be released of active silver from the wound dressings to our wounds, of course. And then with prolonged exposure or repeated applications of wound dressings, for example, in burn patients, this active silver can actually go into our bloodstream. And then and it's distributed to our organs and tissues, and there has also been studies of detection of persistent levels of bioactive silver in the urine and the presence of this bioactive silver in wounds and in urine because in wounds you have it's a densely populated microbial habitats and also in the bladder our urinary tract system is a home to various bacteria so there will be a potential of these bacteria to actually develop resistance to nanosilver the consequences of these microbial resistance or bacterial resistance is if we do nothing, we might lose nanosilver as an effective antimicrobial or antibacterial. Because as the resistance to antibiotics rises, you know, the increasing prevalence of these multi-drug resistant bacteria, and we know that there has been Resistance to new generation of antimicrobials such as the triclosan, it has now been banned. So the ability. What was that one? Sorry. Triclosan. Triclosan is an antibacterial ingredient you put in soaps. Okay. U.S. actually has banned this the use because they've found evidence of bacterial resistance to this antibacterial.
2: Where where do we draw a middle ground in terms of yeah. good use of nanosilver, yeah. but avoid developing these resistances yes. if possible?
3: If I was asked what are the main messages of this study, the first is we would like to actually raise an awareness from the public that this nanosilver has been incorporated in consumer products, not just in medical devices. The study actually shown that there is this real or genuine potential or real threat of microbial resistance associated with this, the use of nanoparticles. And it's not just during the use, it's also during the disposal stage. Studies actually have shown presence of bioactive silver in soil, in sewaged, in natural aquatic communities.
2: Because we're throwing that stuff out. And... Yeah, for
3: example, for a leaching, if you're wearing a silver clothing, when you wash it, it leaches to the environment. And this is very worrying because if you have bioactive silver in the environment it has antimicrobial activity. So it means that it will actually affect dynamic and the balance of the microbial community, the ecology of the naturally present microbial community in the environment, which is very important to actually maintain the balance of these microbial communities. And silver has been shown to affect or to disrupt this balance. One of the other main messages is we would like to actually advocate for a more judicial use of nanosilver. And the study actually urges for an effectively regulated nanosilver. Before we actually put nanosilver into hair dryers, for example, we need to actually think or assess the benefits versus the risk. For the nanosilver to be incorporated in wind dressings, for example, it has been proven to be effective because it kills the bacteria. But in hair dryers or silver taken as a dietary supplements, we didn't actually see what's the benefits of that.
2: Dr Cindy Gunawan, Chancellor's Research Fellow in the I3 Institute at the University of Technology, Sydney. You're listening to Think Health on 2SER 107.3. The emergency room is one of the last places you intend to make a visit to. But apparently, too many of us are regular visitors. Overcrowding is one, if not the major strain on the emergency department, with so many people coming in putting pressure on finite resources. These pressures then have a snowball effect throughout the hospital, as more people in emergency means more people potentially in need of hospital care. Naomi van der is a postdoctoral research fellow from the University of Technology, Sydney, whose research looks at models to deal with these issues of overcrowding. Naomi first recalls what her time working in emergency was like.
1: Hectic. <laughs> so as a secretary, you're the first person that people see and the first person that people tell their stories to. I think the worst is when people just rush into the emergency department wanting to see a doctor right away and you as a secretary have to ask them for their you know their insurance card and their data and you need to make sense of what they're telling so you can get them to see a doctor as soon as possible so that can be quite stressful and there can be quite some aggression as well especially when there's people who are in their influence that's the worst part but it's also it's never boring actually yeah. <laughs> so that's good
2: when you have a rush of people coming in, do you normally have enough doctors on hand to help the amount of people who are seeking help?
1: Yeah, so that's, that's the big issue uh, now, what they call overcrowding, when there's just too many patients for the capacity of the department, so for the number of nurses and doctors and beds that are available. In multiple countries around the world, this is getting a bigger problem every year. So since the 90s, there have been quite a few studies on how to solve this issue. It's a matter of three things, basically, this whole problem. It's a matter of input. So how many patients come to the department, basically? How many patients do you have to cater for? Uh, Are they very severely ill in general? How many emergency departments do you have in a certain area? Then there's a matter of Like throughput. How quickly can you treat those patients? And do you have everything you need to treat them as quickly as you can? And then the biggest problem is often output. So you've assessed the patient and um, you decided, for example, that the patient needs to be admitted to the hospital. Do you have a bed available for that patient within the hospital to send him or her to? The fact that the inpatient wards, just internal medicine, neurology, cardiology, where you want to send your patient to, cannot accept another patient. Um, So they stay in the bed in the emergency department, for example, and the emergency staff cannot use that bed until that patient has gone somewhere else.
2: And so it's not just a case, I guess, of overcrowding within the emergency department.
1: Yeah, yeah, exactly. So the interesting thing is about emergency department research, or emergency medicine research, is that a lot of the issues in the healthcare system as a whole, for example, the hospital system, the GP system, they show themselves within the emergency department because, for example, if your GP system isn't working very nicely and patients just go to the emergency department instead of going to the GP, that also contributes to crowding. If the hospital doesn't have enough capacity for the people it wants to treat, the issues sort of manifest themselves first at the EDs.
2: What is the work, I guess, that you're doing in your field to somewhat combat these overcrowding problems?
1: So one of the things you can do to improve that output of patients, to get them to an actual proper bed where they need to be, is to make another department, an an acute admission department, they often call it, where you can sort of store the patients that, that are waiting to be admitted in a ward.
2: And what sort of facilities are in that acute place?
1: So there needs to, obviously there needs to be nursing care and a physician that's able to to attend to those patients. We didn't have the opportunity to make a department like that. So this is a hospital in the Netherlands. So what we did was to create, yeah, we called it a flexible acute admission department, which was basically consisting of beds all around the hospital that were for that night available for acute admission patients. So we installed a rule where every afternoon the wards from the hospital needed to have 15 beds available for acute admissions, which has made... The wards like, work harder to, to clear those beds, to to make capacity for emergency um, admissions, for example, by making more rounds so that the doctors can discharge patients that don't need to stay another night, for example, to, to clear that bed, to have someone there that needs it urgently.
2: I guess from a resource point of view, to say to a particular hospital that there need to be a certain amount of beds around the hospital, or in fact build another ward or department next to this emergency department... To me, that would strike up a number of issues, one being the money to be able to put these places together and two, having not just financial resources, but resources in terms of staff and facilities available so that that system could, in fact, operate and actually start.
1: Yes, exactly. Yeah, The issue that we previously had was that sometimes there were beds available, but they were not in the right type of ward that you wanted. So for example, you had a patient that came into the emergency department and has cancer, but there's no bed available in the internal medicine or oncology department. So this patient would stay at the emergency department, to, to wait for a bed in the oncology. Uh, with this system of the flexible of those 15 beds that are available throughout the hospital, this patient would now go to like any department that has a free bed, for example, neurology, stay there for one night, and then when a bed frees up in oncology, he would go there. So it sort of makes better use of the beds that are not necessarily from that specialty, but that have nurses on the department and doctors on that department that have the possibility to look after that patient. Regarding the input of patients, there's been in the Netherlands but also internationally some worries about patients using the emergency department that shouldn't be using it. So that would be in countries that have a a system with GPs, that would be patients that could have gone to the GP um, instead of to the ED.
2: And for what might they be going to the ED for? And it's like, hey, you could have gone to the GP. What, why would they be going to the emergency department?
1: A lot of them came with injuries. Fall and you, you hurt your arm and you go to the emergency department without thinking about going to the GP, for example. Some patients don't have a GP or don't know how to access the GP system. In general, the assumption is that those patients that self-refer to the ED could have gone to the GP first. We found that in more than half of all the cases, those patients actually needed facilities that were only available in the hospital. But in general, the patients that do self-refer to the ED are less sick than the patients that are referred by their GP or that are brought in by an ambulance.
2: Mm-hmm. In terms of a model to assess these problems, what do you see as being the proactive solution here to try and remedy something that is happening more and more because more and more people are on the planet, more and more people will need healthcare or or treatment or emergency departments at some point?
1: Yeah, I think it's really all about identifying which patients need which type of care and who's the right person to give it to them. And I think... One big solution is to make better use of staff that's not the specialist doctors. So make use of emergency nurse practitioners who can treat the people that come in with acute problems but that don't necessarily need to be evaluated by a doctor. Um, they can take a large part of the stream of patients and handle them quite efficiently for like, lower cost than a doctor would be able to do that for, because you really want to use your highly specialised staff to treat the patients that need that highly specialised care.
2: Naomi van der Linden, postdoctoral research fellow in the Centre for Health Economics Research and Evaluation at the University of Technology, Sydney.
3: What do you do when your job is taken by a robot? Where does all your e waste go?
1: How
2: do you split your digital assets when you break up with your partner? This is Think Digital Futures. Each week, an exploration of the moral and mind boggling questions that face us in the digital age. You can listen on your favourite podcast app. Just search for Think Digital Futures.
0: Health on 2 107.3.
2: Pesticides are used across the globe as a way to control weed and pest populations, but often they're criticised for doing more harm than good. An ongoing series of research conducted at the University of Technology Sydney has found that pesticide use doesn't result in greater crop yield, and their use has severe implications on the health of farmers. This story comes from Think Sustainability.
0: So this particular experience would have been back in about 2013. Um, at that time, we were documenting outbreaks of this brown plant hopper, this, this terrible uh, problem for rice production in the region.
2: This is Finn Hogan, a research fellow from the School of Life Sciences at the University of Technology, Sydney. Finbar's main line of research looks at plant-insect interactions and the use of pesticides. And right now, he's talking about his work in the agricultural fields of Sri Lanka.
0: I mean, I remember watching farmers bending over to fill their canisters and another farmer coming by and just spraying them in the face. Spraying them in the face with what? With pesticide because they're 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 walking up and down the field spraying while the other one is filling the can. There's there's a lack of unconsciously underst- doing uh, that? unconsciously. Yeah, yeah. They're not aware. They're not aware of the dangers. They're not aware of the dangers. Uh, there has been studies. Um, I, I remember one in particular in Ecuador with um, potato producers that was very interesting. Where they put dyes, so a kind of a an ultraviolet dye was put into the pesticide, and then afterwards they would photograph people. To look at where the residues were, and people had it running from their nose and running from their mouth, and you know, all over their hands. So you know, people just aren't aware of the potency, the danger uh, of the pesticides, and um, you know, and how how easily it gets it gets on them. I, I remember another time myself driving a product from you know in Ireland, you know, driving from one part of the country to another, and Ireland is small, uh, and coming out at the other end, and all my face was peeling. <laughs> so, so these are very dangerous products.
2: Why can pesticides be bad?
0: Pesticide has a, an interesting effect on some insects where it actually increases their reproductive capacity. So instead of killing them, you get a, an increase in reproductive output. They eat more. They disperse more, and in Asia, the, the insects that we were most interested in, which was one called the brown planthopper, causes hundreds of thousands of hectares of damage to rice because of pesticides.
2: What, what is happening with the pesticide and the insect to accentuate its reproductive rate?
0: The ecological reason for it is that because the insect knows it's stressed, so the population is stressed, If they knows there's a stressor, and it reacts by trying to produce uh, more offspring. This is not something that's just in insects. It actually was first discovered in sponges, in sea sponges. Uh, it's a thing called hormoligosis, And it also occurs, for example, in uh, some plants. So, For example, beans. It's very well known that if, if beans are attacked by insects, they produce more. We call that overcompensation. The plant is saying i 'm in trouble, something is attacking me i 'm going to produce more offspring so the same thing happens with with insects
2: what 's in pesticides most of the time
0: uh, mainly neurotoxins what 's neurotoxins so neurotoxin will actually um stop neural transmission in in insects so these are these are quite potent now many of them would have been banned now, i mean a lot of a lot of them, the most potent pesticides are being banned, but there are things like um Synthetic pyrethroids, which are like a, similar to a defense that plants have. There are growth hormones in things like juvenile hormone, which don't allow the, the insect to properly re, uh, grow and, and develop. So, there are a whole load of things. I mean, the worst things would, of course, be the neurotoxins.
2: How might that have an effect on a farmer? Like, Aside from just the short-term exposure that you had and it was burning your face and lips, like, what are some of the long-term health implications of being exposed to those sorts of chemicals on a daily basis?
0: Oh, I think they're severe. Unfortunately, I think uh, research into the consequences of pesticide overuse has diminished. I mean, this is something that we see. Funding uh, doesn't seem to be going in that direction much anymore as we become very much... uh, Pro industry in, in seeking funding for research. Firstly, of course, there's nauseas and things, and we've all gone through them. I mean, my, me myself, I've, because, you know, working in agriculture and um, visiting farms uh, where I will come out with nausea, you know, vomiting or, or dizzy. It worries me. I mean, I don't know what the long term consequences are, even my own health, and I avoid it very much. There are surprising things. So there was a study out recently, I uh, suppose now a couple of years ago that showed that farmers in the in the United States, there was a link between pesticide use and depression uh, among farmers. I remember talking to a farmer in Nicaragua, in, in Central America, who had uh, bananas, and he spoke about how one of his children was born with the tongue stuck to his palate. Another had um, liver problems. He himself had problems. Uh, they went to court. Uh, they won against the, the, the company that was producing the nematicide, but they only... Got something like fifty dollars per uh, farm worker, even though they won the case. So you know we're talking about very powerful companies as well that are protecting the rhetoric around their their, their their pesticides. You know they want people to think these are very essential products that we need, but they are dangerous. They're definitely dangerous.
2: You're part of a campaign to get a certification of no pesticides. Can you tell me a bit more about that? What's that? Where okay. is that?
0: Okay, so um, normally what people see are, are there, there's sort of a. Uh, two options. They say, okay, there's organic production and there's conventional. And conventional means using chemical fertilizers, chemical pesticides, transgenics, etc. industrial agriculture. Now, I see this dichotomy as a bit of a problem because organic agriculture is difficult to do.
2: What are some of these organic fertilizers? What are they?
0: M- mainly they're mulches and, and you know, dung, for example. Cow dung would be used a lot, decomposing materials. Uh, chemical fertilizers then would be things like ammonia, urea things that you can buy in, a, in an agricultural supply store. And when we interviewed farmers, we interviewed over 300 farmers um, in, in Sri Lanka recently and we asked them, what are their main problems? And their main problem is they cannot access uh, organic fertilizers. They don't have the infrastructure around uh, uh, organic production. It's much easier to get chemical fertilizer. Now if you get a chemical fertilizer, and remember in a country like Sri Lanka, that the government subsidizes chemical fertilizer. So straight away, the organic farmers are at a disadvantage you know, because the organic farmer has no benefit in terms of using organic fertilizers, in terms of the economics of the organic fertilizer. Organic fertilizer would cost something like 20,000 Sri Lankan rupiah. And for the farmer, you know, after the government subsidy, it will cost only a couple of thousand. So it's a huge amount of um, money that they're saving on fertilizer. One of my colleagues did an experiment with thousands of farmers in Vietnam where he said to the farmers, you know, please grow one of your rice, half of your rice field using your conventional method and the other without pesticides. Everything else the same but no pesticide. And none of those farmers saw any gain from the pesticide. So what I'm saying is if we can certify that products are chemical free, this will be a huge advance, a huge advance.
2: Finbar Horgan, Research Fellow in the School of Life Sciences at the University of Technology, Sydney. You can find an extended version of this story on Think Sustainability, our sister program. Think Sustainability is available on iTunes and your favourite podcast app. Just search for Think Sustainability. That's all we have time for today on Think Health. If you'd like to find out anything more about today's show, head to 2ser.com forward slash Think And If you have any questions after today's show, go see your GP. Make sure you subscribe to Think Health on your favourite podcast app. We're also available on iTunes. Think Health is a collaboration between the University of Technology Sydney and 2SER Radio. I'm Jake Morecambe. Thanks for your company.